where everything is plausible until proven otherwise. I'm Sirka. And I'm Sinead. Uh, so we've a slightly tricky one today. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, not, not in that way. You see, we're talking about um, a subject that people have a lot of very strong feelings on. Oh, God. <laughs> so this is slightly nerve wracking. I mean, when it came to Pretty Cure, I was okay with the Pretty Cure fandom listening in because I thought, you know, they're very chill. Um, even the Disney princess um, fandom wouldn't necessarily be hostile towards new ideas but uh because i'm going to be speaking about a beloved cultural icon in a relatively negative way what you will not believe the amount of fandom we had for thomas the tank engine and fireman sam elon dated so we were <laughs> we actually were it was very surprising uh, but today I'm going to be talking in a not particularly pleasant way about a beloved cultural icon. Um, so this is a little bit nerve wracking, but I, I'd like uh, people to keep an open mind about this, uh, including myself, because I also have strong feelings, but they go the other way. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> this is nerve wracking. <laughs> it is a little bit. I am scared. If there's ever a um, an episode that gets us banned from somewhere, this could possibly be it. <laughs> the band episode yeah um so today i am going to be talking about batman i'm batman yeah um <laughs> just the defeat in your eyes when i said that i'm so sorry no do you know what this is a thing right and i think this may be because i'm a, such a fan of anime and in particular kind of very girly anime yeah do you know uh, i think just something about batman has never appealed to me also there's a couple of negative connotations I have with Batman because I used to know people who were totally obsessed with him ah, as a character fair. and those were not very good people to be around at the time. Um, now, I'm not saying, obviously, that Batman attracts bad people as fans yeah. at all. I'm just saying that there's a particular type of not very pleasant person to be around that likes to seize on Batman for some reason. Like the Punisher. Yeah. More on that later. Um, <laughs> actually, as it happens, I prefer the Punisher as a character. Oh. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk about that. So uh, there's a lot of theories about Batman. Um, mm -hmm. But my theory about Batman is that Batman is using his vast amount of wealth as Bruce Wayne to keep the rogues and his rogue galleries coming back so that he can fight them. Mm. He is paying for them to terrorize Gotham City so that he can fight them. That is my theory. The end. <laughs> and I won't no. say any more about that. No, no I... that makes... I have... Interesting I sense. Yeah. Mm. You see, like, I know Batman is a character that's gone back many, many years. Um, mm -hmm. And since the early days, especially when the comic strip started being written in the early um, 20th century. Since the 60s, wasn't it? No, I think it started well before that, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, because um, it happened shortly after Superman. And Superman yeah. was very much um, kind of the gold in part of the golden age of Hollywood. But around this time, people were had certain villains mm -hmm. that were sort of lionized as uh, almost cultural heroes. Likes of Bonnie and Clyde and everything. People yeah. grew up with those. Um, but there's 
a bit of a thing there in that the only reason that these people were lionized is because they would appear larger than life when people wrote articles about them in the yeah. newspaper so it was like reading a comic book like propaganda and stuff not even propaganda but it was just exciting to see something that wasn't just kind of constant stock market crashes and nobody can afford to buy bread and everything it's just like just these, like now. these two <laughs> yeah these two rogues are tearing across uh, across america um but yeah batman was uh, very much set up so that he had villain he was fighting villains that were very theatrical mm-hmm, yeah yeah so they were always very larger than life and then he had to be larger than life to try and cope with them as well. So there was this, like, they did also say that um, Batman's main influence was The Phantom, which was a radio play that used to happen in the 1920s. And again, there was that very theatrical aspect to it. People would tune in for about an hour uh, because that was a big thing. It was their big entertainment. Like, yeah. characters like Batman have been going on for years and years and years. But then as the times changed, they had to rewrite Batman and his rogues in order to fit in with more modern sensibilities. So yeah. you, you get a you get a lot of kind of strangeness there. You so can, You can even say that in like some of the movies that have come out recently, the actual evolution of their villains are very different. They've become a bit more from really really over the top to like the original poison ivy that was with the the george clooney one george clooners yeah <laughs> um yeah th- like those were the tim burton movies um, yeah. and well that was a joel schumacher movie um my favorite one everybody keeps laughing at it but i loved that was my favorite batman <laughs> Hey, listen, it was it was truer to the very early comics than the rest of the films were. So it has that going for it. Because old Batman was so campy, like the original Penguin and stuff like that. It was very almost cartoonish. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the cartoonishness. Even with the modern day villains, that's where I'm going in. So my um, my first part of my theory is that his rogues gallery. The Joker, mm-hmm. Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn, um, Mr. Freeze, the Penguin. Penguin yeah. yeah, all of these guys, they're not run-of-the-mill criminals. But then you also have people like um, Crocodile. Um, that graffiti artist who paints with blood, whose name I could not find before I came <laughs> here. Um, where have they gone when Batman has caught them? They go to Arkham. Yes, they do. Do you want to know how many times the Joker has escaped from Arkham Asylum? Three. <laughs> 79 times. 79 times. Oh my God. Okay. Almost all of them have escaped at some point or another from Arkham Asylum. It's it's like, um, you know, in Harry Potter, Azkaban, right? Yeah. When, when, first of all, they say, yeah, Sirius Black has escaped. Oh no. And there's a panic because they think nobody escapes from Azkaban. What are you, crazy? Um, and then a whole bunch of other people escape from Azkaban. As far as I know, that's, oh, and uh, what's his name? Grindenwald. Didn't he escape from Azkaban? I don't know. But in the mainline Harry Potters, nobody had gotten out until like Sirius Black had. Okay. So that wasn't quite as much of a like colander of prisoners that Arkham is. Yeah. It was a bit more secure. And then all the others got out because there was a huge explosion yeah and people got out that way that's but fair yeah and you see these are these are also these are wizards these right? are wizards yeah you, you know that you have to put these people under very secure lock and key now at one point nightwing is quoted as saying that he wants to hold on to the joker for more than an hour and a half this time 
Oh, God. After he escapes. Now, in one particular comic, and I do believe it was uh, Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth, um, Arkham had at least one unqualified teenage volunteer working in the asylum. Jeez. What sort of madness is that? Because it's, I have a few real life parallels to Arkham Asylum. And one of them is uh, Broadmoor in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So Broadmoor does not allow unqualified volunteers in certain sections. And these are the sections that would have the likes of Peter Sutcliffe in them. Like high security. The highest security. Um, Yeah. Like the maximum security wing is where they house most of the serial killers. Um, Hmm. There was a really interesting book written a couple of years ago by John Ronson called The Psychopath Test. Mm -hmm. And in it... Ronson got to interview a guy who got sent to Broadmoor because he had faked his mental illness in order to not get sent to jail. Ah. And then he discovered that uh, you do not want to go to Broadmoor for any reason You'd take at jail. all. <laughs> you, you would. Even Peter Sutcliffe himself has had begged before to get out of Broadmoor in order to go to the jail where he got stabbed. Good to Lord. go back to the jail where he got stabbed. Right? Broadmoor is very, very high security. Um... Now, if I'm to compare to it as well, Broadmoor, the last escape from Broadmoor was in 1991. It's mm-hmm. had very few escapes since that. The surrounding area, so all the residential areas, it has 13 warning sirens that alerts the entire area surrounding Broadmoor to go into lockdown. That includes schools, colleges, hospitals, everything. They wow. go into lockdown immediately. That's serious business. I didn't realize. Okay. And again, oh my gosh. these are normal people. Yeah. You know, these are like, these are insanely dangerous normal people, but these are people that you can take out with a sniper rifle bullet to the back of the head. Yeah. Um, you would hope it wouldn't come to that. Though. Yeah. Um, as, as a fun fact, Graham Young, the uh, poisoner um, that the uh, film, the, the Young Poisoner's Handbook was mm. based on, um, he was in Broadmoor. He killed himself in Broadmoor. Managed to poison himself with a ring. Bleak. Yeah, very, very bleak. But it's not a place you want to go because it's so high security. Their freedoms are severely limited mm. because that is what you do when you have a dangerous inmate. You stop them being able to do the things that normal people can do mm. to lessen the chance that they're going to break out and cause havoc. Um. So, yeah, the, I'm also going to compare it a little bit to the uh, New Mexico State Penitentiary Riot of 1980, which was... A very notorious police riot because it was exceptionally violent. Uh, there was a really interesting book uh, written on it called uh, The Hate Factory. Oh, gosh. Um, and also another one called The Devil's Butcher Shop, which I have not read. Um, but this happened in this incredibly overcrowded prison where they had a secure ward where they kept all of the um, the prisoners that, well, first of all, there was a lot of snitches on it, mm. but it was also the ward where they kept special cases um, and that was their secure unit. Now, it got broken into um, as the other prisoners rioted and a lot of the people there were killed. Um, in the end, 33 inmates died. 200 were injured, but the police took back control within 36 hours and not one prisoner set foot outside the facility. They yeah. never got that far. All right. And this takes place, that took place in America in the 1980s. Yeah. Where does our, where is Arkham Asylum located? America. America. <laughs> it doesn't have the Broadmoor's um, excuse that you can't shoot people on site because if they are a dangerous prisoner in a high security facility, 
in the States, you can absolutely shoot them on sight. A lot of America's armed to the teeth. like Completely. And that brings me on to another um, really weird anecdote. Um, And this is a personal anecdote of mine. I got... um, There was a guy who wrote an article in Bizarre Magazine years ago when I used to read it. um, Mm -hmm. And his hobby was that he wrote serial killers. Oh my gosh. Like... I want to know what would spark a hobby like that for somebody that they're like, I'm just going to like message Jeffrey Dahmer or something. There's two things at play there. First of all, there's a little thing called uh, high. It's either hybrist or hybristophilia, where people are almost attracted to killers. Um, yeah, that's a thing. Um, Gosh. Yeah, not judging necessarily, but um. But there's also then a morbid curiosity there too. Yeah. And you see the serial killers probably like the, the inmates had to court this because they get very little outside stimulation from anything. But this guy, he made a habit of writing to serial killers for the fun of it. Yeah. Um, and I think he might have been the same guy who then went on to open the Museum of Death in Los Angeles that I, I visited. Would l- I would love to go see that. I've heard it's there amazing. You go. Morbid fascination. I went. I had great crack there. The two people I went with couldn't handle it and had to leave <laughs> 10 minutes in. I thought it was great fun. But I got talking to the guy because this was his hobby as well. It might have yeah. been the same guy that wrote the article because uh, the entire entranceway there was actually wallpapered with letters he'd gotten from serial killers over the years. That's insane. It was insane. And I just got to talk to him about some of his experiences with um, the people he'd been talking to. Um, now, the guy who wrote the article was saying that he got an opportunity to visit one of the guys in person. I'm not sure who it was because this is a very old article and going back years and years, but it did stay with me, mm. made some sort of an impact on me when I read it, is that he went to this prison to visit one of these guys. I think it might have been Edmund Kemper. Mm. Um, but he was in the highest security part of that actual prison and he posed for a picture with the guy. Now, at this point, this guy was in his 60s. He was kind of middle-aged, schlubby looking, bit overweight. He was in white hair, didn't look very physically imposing. And the guy that was in visiting, he was a youngish guy, kind of well-built. You know, you'd imagine he'd be able to take a 60-year-old in a fight, in a fair fight. Especially in a place where everything's locked down so much you can't have shoelaces. Or pens. Gosh. (laughs) All right. Well, what he wanted to do for his picture is he wanted to sort of raise his hand so that he could give him like a noogie or put his, you know, two fingers up behind him like the bunny sign that everybody used to do in pictures back then. And he said as soon as he raised his hand, the security guard at the very top corner of the thing screamed at him to put his hand down right now and literally had a rifle trained on him. Oh, my gosh. In a second. That is how high security that place was. They were ready to shoot him on sight. And also when you compare to like the highest security place uh, that I found in America is the ADX Florence, um, which is insanely high security. That is where you put terrorists. That is where you put the most dangerous people on the surface of the planet, mostly. Um, Again, these are regular people. Yeah. These are they're dangerous, but these are normal people with normal abilities. They aren't superheroes or supervillains or anything. They're just the, regular people with they no don't, powers. Yeah, or anything. they don't have any metaphysical abilities. And um, like even little things like apparently the floor plan in that building is set out in such a way that it confuses the inmates when they're walking around. So they never know where they are. Gosh, imagine working in somewhere like that. Um, well, the guards, I think, know the floor plan. But then there's also all these uh, like um, 
like buttons, um, kind of panic buttons everywhere, sirens, scanners, everything. It's just to stop them from doing anything that is slightly untoward. Now, again, that is um, uh, that's a modern day facility. But even back in the day, Alcatraz. Yeah. Nobody has ever really known to been to have escaped from Alcatraz. Well, officially. Officially. Um, but most people who tried to escape were either shot or drowned. Or if they've gone missing, it's assumed they drowned. Because if they drowned, you wouldn't find the body. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you compare that to Arkham Asylum. So again, Arkham Asylum has had uh, unpaid um, volunteers working somewhere in the facility so that the Joker was able to get a hold of them and hold them hostage. People 70 es- odd times. <laughs> people have escaped from there on a ridiculous basis. Just absolutely insane basis. But I... What I really recall is this one part of the comic where Crocodile escaped and the guard in there was trying to get him back to his cell or get him kind of uh, contained and he was fighting him with nightsticks. <laughs> nightsticks! Where are you going fighting a crocodile with nightsticks? A real life crocodile? I mean, maybe. There are people who make their living wrestling crocodiles but this is a man with a very thick build who is bigger than the average person, has razor sharp teeth and possibly bulletproof skin, and you are fighting him with a nightstick. You'd at what least are have, you doing? You'd at least have a taser or something. Like. Something like that. And all the guards are trying to get him contained, and they can't because he's crocodile. What? He is not supp- like. Okay, so another comparison here is a Hannibal Lecter. Yes. All right, when they moved, when they had him in the initial facility, it's like there's no, not even any um, bars. It's one of those like seriously thick glass cases. They don't let him have a pencil because he can use a pencil as a weapon. They only let him have crayons. Uh, <laughs> they won't give him his food directly. It's when, true, a little like a little letterbox. Sl- a little slot. The man can talk people into killing themselves. And they've locked him down as much as they possibly can. When they move him from one facility to another, they put him in a straitjacket with a mask across his mouth before they can move him. And then when they put him in a regular edition police cell, even with all the security that he has, he manages to break out and he kills two people. But that's Hannibal Lecter. Again, terrifying person, but a normal guy with no metaphysical powers that we know of. Yeah. You know? That facility had more security wrapped around Hannibal Lecter than Arkham had wrapped around Crocodile. What? There's something not right there. There's, it's, it's either that they're severely underfunded, which I don't think they are, or something's going on there. Okay, so again, I was looking up little um, kind of excuses for this. Now, uh, say government unfunded. When it's these people who are that dangerous, I think this is one of those things that's very high priority. National on the security. List of, yeah, on the list of most politicians. They pour quite a lot of money into this. But when you're talking about direct donors, I mean... Gotham has quite a few millionaires living there, yeah. not the least of which is Bruce Wayne. I mean, I think it's entirely possible for Bruce Wayne to funnel quite a lot of his money. And according to some of the research that I did, he does actually. The Wayne Foundation does funnel some money into Arkham. Yeah, I think it was in one of the Arkham games that came up a lot that Bruce Wayne's parents had funded the building of Arkham. No, the building of it, it was actually a residential house. Yeah. But they funded turning it into an asylum. Yeah. But there's like, where is this money going? 
Mm. Like, obviously, this money isn't going on making it more secure. Yeah. All right. So exactly like because when you're a donor of these places, I think especially if you are a multimillionaire who could threaten at a moment's notice to withdraw your finances from uh, a severely underfunded public works. Mm. They'll let you tell them how your money should be used. I mean, there again, there's another thing with Broadmoor that um, Jimmy Savile actually had a lot of influence there. Jimmy Savile? Yeah. Oh, Because no. he, he used to donate a lot of money to it and that gave him free reign to go in there. I'm not going to go very far into uh, talking about that. Mm. But, um, but needless to say, he got away with things that he shouldn't have gotten away with because he was a donor to Broadmoor. And that was the normal part of Broadmoor, not the high security part of Broadmoor. Um, but there you go. You've got a multimillionaire who is funneling money in. And maybe because he's doing that, then he's saying to the other millionaires, oh, no, it's OK. You put your money into other ventures. I'm going to fund Arkham by myself. So you don't have to worry about that. So if it's re- if he's keeping the security low on purpose to encourage them to break out and cause havoc, so that he can get back in his Batman suit and beat them up and put them back because he never puts them anywhere else, does he? And he doesn't kill them because he's incapable of. But there's the other thing. When, like, most of the people who end up in prison end up with very few resources. Mm, Um, Yeah. Yeah. So even the ones that are kind of, you know, they go to jail, they get out. They go to jail, they get out. They go to a mental asylum, they get out. Yeah. When you come out, you don't have much. You don't have any prospects. How, it's hard to get a job. Yeah, I mean, it's different if you're in the mob. I, I know that like in the likes of Goodfellas that um, they he used to say that when he went into prison, it was like being out anyway because he was around all his friends yeah. and they used to just cook pasta dinners in the jail cell all the time and nobody said anything about it. But then when they got out, his um, his superior would give him some money and just say, OK, here's some money. You go do this. Go, um, you know, and he had all these resources waiting for him when he got out. When you get the likes of the villains in um, Batman, and they do make a big mm. thing that all these uh, villains are quite mentally ill. Yeah, they, they did in later things as well. That um, you like know, the Joker was supposed to be very mentally deranged, and then Scarecrow as well was supposed to be like a psychiatrist gone mad. Yeah, a psychiatrist that has gone insane, which actually is not that uncommon. There's a mm. lot of people who have very severe mental difficulties go into the psychiatric um, industry because sometimes they go in because they think they've got a better understanding. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they go into it because they think it might help them understand themselves and their impulses. And some of them go into it to look for victims. Ooh. So uh, that that's another very uncomfortable uh, aspect of the psychiatric world. But most people, when they come out of an asylum, whether they've escaped or whether they've been let out, they have very few resources. Unfortunately, a lot of them end up on the street. Yeah. You know, um, which is horribly sad, but they have no resources to go to. So how then does somebody, after breaking out of an asylum, get all these resources in order to make himself a threat? Yeah. You like, know, suddenly get bombs or guns or get in touch with all his henchmen. Yeah. All to right. be able to pay the henchmen. Exactly. Because these henchmen, would they wouldn't stick around for, you know, f- for giggles. For you, shiz and giggles. Like, Joker has huge scars on his face as well. You could hardly see him working in, like, a 7-Eleven 
or Walmart just like hello may I pack your bags and he has like a huge scar across his face he, he couldn't even really go anonymous could he no. you know just you know put on a cap and like steal some clothes from a washing line and just go yeah I'm a normal guy totally um no I mean he has people working for men on the outside but somebody's funding those people and who is it you know mm. but there's the other thing is that um the more theatrical a person is the more likely they are to get caught now this is a section of the podcast that uh, is going to get a little bit grim unfortunately so as I'm, if the worst half wasn't grim <laughs> no this is actually going to get a, a little bit grimmer so i am putting in a content warning if you um if you're uncomfortable with talking about uh, some of the messier aspects of true crime then you might want to give this section a miss and join us instead next week I'm not going to go into huge detail because I don't want it to sound like I'm glorifying any of the people that I'm going to be talking about but I want to kind of give a better perspective of what I'm talking about by comparing this to real life examples uh, so if you're still with us then great um, to compare this to successful criminals and in particular successful killers mm. and I say successful with a real note of bitterness there because I don't consider these people to be in any way successful at anything except the fact that they got away with their crimes for so mm. long but that's because a lot of the time they knew what people to target yeah they knew what they were doing. They knew that you will be less likely to be noticed if you are just an average schlubby guy going about your business. And if you attack people from incredibly vulnerable, like if you attack prostitutes, if you attack people from um, racial minorities, the homeless. Um, actually, Peter Sutcliffe in particular, when he started off, he did attack a lot of random women, mostly at night and usually yeah. walking home from places in the dark, as a lot of people did back then. But then when he did actually get around to killing people, he often picked prostitutes because yeah. their lifestyle was quite dangerous and people wouldn't necessarily raise an eyebrow if they went missing for a couple of days. It's the unfortunate thing about it that their whole job is to get into cars with strangers and they can disappear so easy. It's really tragic. It's horrible. And in particular, then also Robert Picton, a serial killer that was uh, working in yeah. Canada, almost exclusively attacked prostitutes and this guy he used to brag about his crimes to people that he met in at parties like when he got um he had taken a lot of drugs and then he started talking to people about the killings that he did that in the end was how he got caught not because mm. anybody really reported these women missing um at the time that he was at his most active, like there were warnings going around that there was a serial killer preying on all these women, but nobody had any leads and nobody was really willing to investigate any further because again, these were prostitutes and people didn't feel like sticking their neck out for them, which is very, very unfortunate. Awful, awful thing. And because he ran a farm as well, it was uh, that was yeah. a factor in how he disposed of um, his victims, which is another little tick there because nobody would really raise an eyebrow about you raising um animals in particular pigs are supposed to be able to like completely devour a human body in 48 hours or something like yeah, that yeah completely pigs are pigs are just not discriminatory that way yeah. so he got away with so much of his stuff until the moment that he got caught was when he talked to the wrong person mm. about his crime so you could almost say 
he got a little bit too bold. And the same with Peter Sutcliffe. He started targeting more regular women. And that's mm-hmm. when he was picked up. There's also um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, he mailed 16 bombs between 1978 and 1995, killed three people and injured 23. Now, he was very meticulous with his crime. He left a lot of very mm. misleading cues. He was very careful about his fingerprints. He would not have gotten caught if it wasn't for the fact that he liked writing manifestos. Yeah. And sending them to police stations and journalists. And the fact that he was living in a cabin in the woods with a generator and typing his manifestos up on a typewriter that had one offset key. And it's also the fact that what he was writing was very distinctive. Yeah. You know, here's a really weird little anecdote. But um, somebody once accused me, uh, well, I'd say accused me. <laughs> of murder. <laughs> no, no. Some, somebody uh, once um said you know oh i know you were posting on 4chan and i was like what and she was like oh somebody was posting about how they really wanted to see more dress prints with clouds on them and i figured that's Sinead and i was like i don't post on 4chan what are you on about and she's like no but it was definitely you because it sounded exactly like you and i know you've talked about how much you want cloud prints on dresses and i was like well i do but i don't think i'm the only person who does that And it's just that thing, you know, the way when there's certain people who have a very distinctive pattern to their writing and distinctive things that they talk about. Yeah. So that you can almost spot them even when you know it's not them. Now, Mm. this person obviously got that completely wrong, but it was just the fact that apparently the person who had been posting there sounded a bit like me and was typing something that sounded a bit like what I would have talked about if I had been posting there. She immediately thought it was me. And that's what happened to Ted, uh, Ted Szynski is his manifesto that he sent to the newspaper made his brother think that sounds a lot like my brother. Oh, I'd, my God, really? I'd better tip off the police about that. Oh, my God. But yeah, that's a little thing. But kind of going back to what we we're talking about, about picking the right victims. Um, Rachel Moran wrote a very interesting book about her time as a prostitute. Um And it was quite harrowing because Mm. she was talking about uh, all the things that happened to her. It was insanely dangerous. Now, she... I'd imagine it would be terrifying. She had no other options open to her at the time. She was living in a very precarious situation. Um, But she talked about, you know, getting threatened by a guy with a shotgun one time. I can't quite remember if that was in Ireland or in England, but I think this might have happened in Ireland, which is... Like on the list of places that are relatively safe, Ireland's pretty high up there. Yeah, we don't have access to guns or anything like that. And we haven't had any serial killers that I know of. There's not in a very long time, if any. I think we had one official serial killer in that he killed three people. And then we have a suspected serial killer who is responsible for a lot of disappearances of women. But mm. I don't think they've ever really pinned down that on anybody. I think they've had suspects, but they haven't really pinned it down. But again, like that's um, I mean, that's the nature of the thing is that even in a country that is considered relatively safe, that you get a case like mm. her getting threatened with a shotgun. Um, and you can imagine how much more dangerous that is in a country which has an insanely high murder rate. Yeah. But again, This allowed these people to get away with their crimes for so long because they were not theatrical. The more theatrical you are, the more likely it is to get caught. And that's the thing with Batman then. Batman 
doesn't seem to go after serial killers. No. Doesn't seem to go after drug dealers. He did at the start a little bit. In some of the films, he was going for mob bosses. But when you see him fighting somebody, it's usually one of his one of his rogues gallery who are incredibly theatrical. Yeah, like the Riddler and stuff like that, which would be all about theatrics with the huge costumes and the very over the top and shenanigans clues and writing manifestos. You know, you'd know who it was the second it happened. Like and several of them have full on press conferences. <laughs> completely. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. And then, of course, you never see him going after a suspected serial killer. And he's no. supposed to be like they call him the world's greatest detective. He is in my arse. Clearly, it's Angela Lansbury. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but even to go like um, the Punisher in the other comics, I mean, yeah. He makes it his business to go after serial killers, mob bosses, drug dealers and human traffickers. Mm, and yeah. he kills them. He does. Straight out. He makes, <laughs> he makes a note of killing them. But also he doesn't really wear a costume. He wears his Punisher t-shirt, but that's just to give them a kind of an idea of what they're dealing with here. Doesn't wear a mask because he doesn't need to cover his face. He just looks like a normal dude. Yeah. He doesn't care. He doesn't need to wear a mask. Why... Like, if you're trying to hide your identity, why are you trying to make yourself look like the most identifiable figure on the surface of the planet? Like, if the Punisher just closed over his coat, he could technically disappear in a crowd. Yeah, exactly. And he has done that before as well. Um, And you see, Batman never insists on killing these people, even though they've killed people. Even though he could could make the excuse that it's self-defense. But he never does. Uh, that's just his policy now there's the other thing as well is that you say well how are you supposed to beef up security when you've got metaphysical people in this prison he has resources there are a lot of resources like they were able to contain like magneto in the x-men universe very easily completely he still got out but that's because he had people working on the outside but batman has links to the justice league he mm-hmm. has people who know about the negative zone and the little piece of paper <laughs> floating off the same. Ah! The negative zone. <laughs> yeah, okay. He's got the likes of Zatanna. He's got people who know people with metaphysical abilities that could help him beef up the security and stop these people from escaping mm. all the time. He hasn't. Why? Because he doesn't want them to be locked down permanently. He mm. wants to be able to keep fighting them. And that's another thing as well uh, with the thing of the Justice League. There was a comic where he said he had a box contained so that if any single member of this Justice League ever went rogue and decided to turn against them, that he would have something to help defeat them. <laughs> and then he opened like it was re- this real dramatic moment. He said, here's Wonder Woman's box. And he opened it and there's nothing in there. And he goes, she has no weaknesses. I don't know what to do about her. <laughs> I was like, well, then, do you know what you should do? You should employ her as a security guard at Arkham Asylum so that she can stop these things from happening. But you don't want that, do you? I'm just picturing Wonder Woman now just pacing back and forth <laughs> down the hall, just banging on the bars of the Joker, just like, settle down. <laughs> or, you know, the crocodile escapes from the cell. She just grabs him by the neck, shoves him back into the cell. Now, stop that. The whip of truth will come after you. <laughs> I'll make you behave whether you like it or not. That's oddly imposing. And I really want to see art of that now. <laughs> yeah, Okay, not even. Uh, obviously, employing Wonder Woman as a security guard at Arkham probably isn't the kind of thing that w- could work out. But she has people. Connections. Every- she has connections. 
There's also a thing where they do say that there's like Gotham seems to be built on like an Indian burial ground of some sort. <laughs> Not an actual Indian burial ground, but it seems to be one of the mouths of hell, which we've discussed. So now we have Gotham City, um, Cabot Cove and Ponty Pandy. <laughs> Those are our three mouths of hell so far. So far. That seems to be so- soaking into the atmosphere and giving certain people powers and yeah. making everything turn a little bit twisted. Now, I would say that's probably working on Batman too. And this is why he is funding the escape of his villains so that he can keep fighting them for kicks. Mm, almost like, you know, when rich people go coursing and stuff. Do you know that, like that whole thing where uh, I'm going to hunt the most dangerous game of all? Man. Man. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what Batman's doing. He's essentially, he's one of those guys, but he can't settle for normal people. He has to get the worst of humanity and he can't just like... Not even the real worst he has of to humanity. Give, he has to give them costumes and things and make them highly visible so that he can just keep getting them. So he can get a huge amount of attention when he catches them. It's like, you know, it's like when people used to catch fish for fun. You know, you come out and you get like a turbot and you go, ooh, look at this cool turbot I got. And you get significant more attention if you catch a shark. Yeah. But the risk involved is roughly the same, you know. Yeah. Because as we've established, sharks really aren't that dangerous. But they're like, ooh, you caught a shark, one of the most dangerous predators on Earth. It's like, ooh, you caught the Joker. He's escaped 79 times. How did you catch him again? Oh, you're fantastic. Did you do something different than the other 79 times you caught him? (laughs) I wonder what number 80 will be. Oh, stop. (laughs) Uh, It's just kind of annoying. But then there's also like, if the place has truly got some sort of demonic entity that's influencing these things happening mm. and people do use the demonic entity as an excuse to t- to say why these people keep escaping from Arkham and that's why it never works is because it's built on some sort of demonic hellmouth but like again Batman has got connections I mean for normal haunted places you get in a priest or you get in somebody from the exorcist uh, <laughs> No, somebody from even the um, voodoo community in order to burn some sage and clear out evil. Some some a paranormal research. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. <laughs> you could bring them in. I think one of them is dead now. Um, but like there are paranormal investigators out there that you could bring in to help out if that is truly a concern of yours. And I'm fairly certain Batman has got some sort of connections with people who work with some sort of demonic presence. So that he could do something about it. In The Exorcist, I mean, your one was a Hollywood star, but she didn't yeah. know the she didn't know where to go, and she managed to find an exorcist, like a world renowned exorcist. I'm sure Batman, with all his connections to the metaphysical plane, could do better than an old priest and a young priest. Well, even like in the Justice League, they would have loads of connections, like Superman. Yeah, isn't the Green Lantern in the Bat? The Justice yes, League. yes, he is. They would have known one of them so is, many. at least. I, I think there's been more than one in there. Yeah, of course. They they'd have they have resources. This doesn't need to keep happening. But I think Batman has an invested interest in a keeping in happening. these people breaking out multiple times. So that he can beat them up and be a hero. Because if he puts them away permanently, he is back to doing what the Punisher does. Beaten up drug dealers, serial killers, human traffickers and the mob. And he doesn't want to do that. There the is, Punisher doesn't care. 
there isn't even any proof that the Joker is the same Joker every time. Because even in the comics, with the art changing so much, he could just be hiring random people to be, oh, this is your turn to pretend to be the Joker while I beat you up. Yeah. Sorry, Ted from Walmart, it's your day today. Oh, God. <laughs> Out of work character actors and homeless people. Yeah. Um, do you remember that there was that whole thing on Bojack Horseman about a uh, character actress Mar- Margo Martindale <laughs> that she was some sort of uh, absolute supervillain and she was like uh, she um, she went missing at one point and she said oh the, uh, you know well I went and I hid out here and then I hid out here and then I did two seasons of The Good Wife and she was like <laughs> you're on two seasons of The Good Wife how is how is that possible that nobody saw you there and she goes it's called acting Bojack I suggest you try it sometime the Good Wife is a, an amazing series. I love it. Sorry. I'll, t- I'll take your word for it. <laughs> TLDR. <laughs> okay. But yeah. So if you're saying like, you know, maybe the Joker was at one point Margot Martindale <laughs> looking for a really meaty role. To, like there are insane method actors out there. Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> oh my God. Like if Bruce Wayne said to Daniel Day-Lewis, I've got the greatest role for you. You have to pretend to be my arch nemesis. And the first thing you have to do is break out of this asylum. But don't worry, I disabled all of the the locks for you. And all you have to do is fight this one security guard that has his hand bitten off by Crocodile. I think you can probably take him because you're taller than him. And just says, Daniel Day-Lewis will go full ham at that role. Meryl Streep is Harlequin. (laughs) (laughs) That's an Oscar, I'm telling you. (laughs) <laughs> oh completely oh Werner Herzog oh my god think you get Werner <laughs> Werner Herzog would be amazing at being one of the supervillains because he got shot at one point and didn't care and carried on doing his interview like somebody shot him with with an air rifle while he was in the middle of doing an interview on the street with this guy and the interviewer just said to him are you okay do you want me to bring you to hospital and he goes no no it's it's okay we'll keep talking he goes are you sure about that he goes yes it was not a significant bullet <laughs> it wasn't a significant bullet there are actors out there that are so dedicated to their craft that if you promise to finance them and said could you lock your like there's also people in the police force who have gone undercover as criminals and gotten themselves into jail in order to infiltrate the mob. And then yeah. there's people who have done the reverse. There are spies out there. I'm sure Batman trying hard enough could find somebody to fund. I think this is also why he never kills any of them. Yeah. Because it would break contract. <laughs> but also it would leave a paper trail and they could trace yeah. back to him. I'd say Alfred is probably the one who is doing all the paperwork on this, but he knows that if he kills any of these, then the contract is void and he can be tracked and they can discover that it's him. So that is behind his no killing policy. Whereas if they die by accident. Well, that's not his fault. That's an act of God. Completely. Yes. And nobody investigates into it any further. I just I have a wonderful image in my head of like batman interviewing potential villains so they have to come up to bruce manor and he's behind the desk like so it's it says here you did three seasons of the good wife (laughs) do me your best villain impersonation jack nicholson (laughs) yes you're hired as the joker i love it i'd say it's not actually him that does it i'd say he's probably behind a screen so nobody knows it's him and it's alfred who's doing them all <laughs> all of the interviews alfred is the one who sets them up it might even be that alfred hires these people at random as a surprise <laughs> so that 
because sometimes Batman does act very surprised when a new villain appears. It's like, haha, I am now Batman's arch nemesis. Like, who is this guy? It's like, oh, oh yeah, his um, that's the Riddler. You know, he's a new one. He's got some new ideas, new fresh ideas for you to fight, and he's perfectly willing to get punched in the face a whole bunch of times. It'll give him a challenge every time to figure out who is who. Yeah, and I was like, oh, this is a new villain. Ooh, <laughs> like a kid playing dress up with yeah. more punching. Exactly, yeah. He, he is just kind of living some sort of very weird, very violent fantasy. And because, you know, he's a spoiled rich kid, nobody ever tells him no. It's like one of those dinners you can go to where you pretend to be take part in a murder mystery. Yes, yeah. It's like a very extended version of that. But like he, he gets bored with the real thing. His entire city is his murder mystery. And you know, probably like when he started out, he was probably absolutely... Yeah, he was probably absolutely fine to kind of hunt down the mobsters that killed his yeah. parents. And then when he did that, he was like, well, what now? And I mean, you do have all those shadow organizations that come out of nowhere and always seem to zero in on Gotham yeah. um, instead of going literally anywhere else and seem to target him in particular when they know he's there. You're like, what kind of cojones would you have to have to be like, I'm going to set up my criminal organization where the best superhero lives, Gotham. Like, it would just be insane. You'd know you'd get caught. Not even that, but I don't think Gotham is like a very nice place to set up a criminal empire. I mean, you want to set up somewhere with more resources. <laughs> more trains. You, that, yeah. didn't, that didn't <laughs> crash so often. Yeah, I mean, maybe these guys, they just really wanted to crash a plane. But like, they they were nowhere near Gotham when they set up that shadow organization. So why did they end up in Gotham? Yeah. Like, Ra's al Ghul had this great philosophical theory. Thing, but he recited it the way you would recite a Shakespearean speech. Very, very well practiced. Exactly, yes. Almost sound like he rehearsed it. Ho oh, oh. <laughs> ho. He's feed, getting his lines fed to him from an earpiece. The Batman Gotham Industries. <laughs> Completely. Okay, I think we're gonna have to finish up. That was my theory. What do you, what are your thoughts? That was wild. That was just even taking out the Batman stuff. All of the stuff about real life asylums. I today I learned today I learned some things that I'm going to have to investigate because I've been getting into a terrible habit of just watching true crime and things like Murder She Wrote and stuff. That I yeah. just it's fascinating how things get figured out and then like why serial killers do it. I think <laughs> it seems to be a thing about women once they start reaching their thirties and onwards just get really obsessed with true crime and serial killers and stuff. So I'm I'm actually fascinated about that. Now. Yeah, do you know my mum was actually she used to read a lot of books about serial killers Same when, with I, my when mom. I was a kid. Yeah. So <laughs> I used to see them all the time. I never really did because I was never really that into it. I find true crime documentaries now fascinating and uh, yeah so I, I think it's it is like a morbid fascination but I do think that um like this kind of goes back to a theory that I have and it's the same reason why I think a lot of people who are really into horror films mm. are some of the nicest people that you will ever yeah, meet yeah they are it's like they have a way of almost purging the evil in their life it's vicariously yeah and I think for a lot of kind of normal women in their 30s true crime is that outlet all right, so uh, yeah, I think we're going to leave it there. I hope you liked that one. That was that was wild and very, very informative and so very dark. Yeah. I feel like we should add some more 
humor. Yeah, it's a, it's a big difference from the the Disney princess theory that we did not so long ago and, <laughs> and magical girls. But listen, everybody needs a bit of darkness in their lives. I think it makes the br- it makes the light that much brighter. brighter. <laughs> yes. So um, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Tumblr under Crackpot Pod. Uh, we're on iTunes, Spotify, 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 yeah, and Spotify. You can put us on Spotify. I'm so sorry. You sound like Cartman. <laughs> we're on Spotify playlists. Um, we are on Buzzsprout, and we're on pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts. We're also on YouTube, where you can see doodles and stuff. And uh, yeah, please come talk to us on Twitter. We love hearing what you think. And interacting with us because it gets lonely down in the bunker. It's nice to know that other people do still exist out there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, this has been another crackpot theory where the truth was significantly wilder and darker than anybody thought was possible. Yes. <laughs> out of all of them, I think this was the one where the actual real life was significantly wilder than our theory. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye.